This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Whoop, the fitness tracker that gets you training smarter by giving you feedback on every moment of your day. Whether you're an elite athlete or just someone looking to get in better shape, the truth is that your workouts are only one part of a fitness routine. To reach your true potential, you need to understand what's going on with your body all the time. You know, your competitive advantage is in your downtime. And if you're not measuring the impact of your downtime, you're simply missing a massive piece of the performance puzzle. That's Kristen Holmes, a former member of the U.S. national field hockey team and also one of the most successful coaches in Ivy League history. She's now the vice president of performance science at Whoop. And as she explains it, many athletes make the mistake of working out based simply on how they feel or what their training schedule says they're supposed to do that day. The problem with this is that we're not reacting to our actual physiological state, which is determined by many factors. How you're eating, how you're hydrating, you know, are you buffering stress and rest throughout the day? What does your sleep look like? Are you getting into deeper stages of sleep? All of these things are massively influential on how you're gonna show up tomorrow. Whoop allows you to easily track all of these variables. It's a lightweight, 100% waterproof wrist strap that calculates recovery, strain, and sleep metrics so you really know what you're ready for and can learn how to take better care of yourself between workouts. And that's what I absolutely love about Whoop is that this is data you can action. We have this incredibly elegant mobile app that gives the user all sorts of really interesting feedback that's consumable, it's digestible. So people start to understand very quickly what are the behaviors that are gonna be really useful and help me toward my goal of being able to show up with as much mental you know, clarity and, and physical strength and you know, all the things that you want in your life to really be present. Learn more about how Whoop can help you reach your potential by training and recovering smarter at Whoop.com. That's W-H-O-O-P.com. For a limited time, outside podcast listeners get 15% off a membership. Just enter the code OUTSIDE at checkout. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Podcast. So here's what I've been wondering. Are the people who are searching for extraterrestrials similar to the people who are searching for Bigfoot? Like, would they get along at a dinner party or no? Um, I think they would. Okay, that was a strange question to ask somebody. But I couldn't help myself, because I was talking to the one person in the world who I knew would take it seriously, Laura Cranes. Laura is the host, creator, and producer of a podcast called Wild Thing. In 2018, she launched the first season with an investigation of Bigfoot. She spent a year in the woods and in labs attempting to figure out if this legendary creature actually exists. And if you're thinking she's loopy and not worth listening to, you're wrong. Laura is a veteran journalist who spent a number of years as a daily news reporter for National Public Radio. She's written feature stories on bushmeat poaching in Africa and plastic pollution in the ocean. In 2015, she wrote a piece for Outside Magazine about a prescribed burn that got out of control. All of this had some of her former colleagues asking her why she was wasting her time with a deep dive on Sasquatch. Can I swear? Yeah. I definitely took some shit from people who were like, Bigfoot, that's not real journalism, not realizing what I was trying to do with the topic. 
And for a long time, that really bothered me, but I've kind of stopped caring as much as I did before. And even when I do get that sort of like side eye, that sort of askance look as like, what are you reporting on? You used to be serious. Once I get a chance to sort of explain it a little bit more, or once they've had a chance to hear it, most people are like, wow, this is really cool. What makes Wild Things so fascinating is that Laura applies rigorous investigative journalism to topics that a lot of people don't take seriously at all. In 2018, it was that big hairy thing. And now, it's aliens. Or really, it's about our obsession with searching the cosmos to find aliens. And what that search says about us. It's looking to outer space and wondering, is there something else like us out there? And realizing that perhaps we're not going to be able to answer that question. But we still want to know. And I don't think we can help ourselves. We just have this curiosity about things and we're dying to find out. So I think both these seasons are kind of about where, you know, scientific exploration meets this deep human desire to know about things that might not have definitive answers. The new season of Wild Thing launches today. It's called Space Invaders. And it begins with a look at two events that might cause people who are skeptical of the existence of other intelligent life forms in the universe to think, maybe. I'm thrilled to share it with you here. If you like it, you can subscribe to Wild Thing wherever you get your podcasts. Here's Laura. On a bright, beautiful, sunny Hawaiian morning, Robert Warrick sifted through images taken the night before by the giant Pan-STARRS telescope at the summit of Haleakala on the island of Maui. Just another ordinary Friday at the office. And then he spotted this thing. First, I thought it was just a regular asteroid candidate that we would see, you know, moving quite fast to just it comes close to the Earth. It was only after I went back and actually found it in two images from the night before, I noticed there was something odd about its motion. The trajectory seemed weird. Based on the first night that we saw it and the two images from the previous night, I noticed it wasn't um, described perfectly by a bound orbit. A bound orbit, meaning an orbit influenced by our sun's gravity. The shape of this thing also appeared unusual. So we infer that it's a really long rotating object. And it moved fast super fast. When we saw it, it was going at 46 kilometers per second. That's a rip-roaring 102,899 miles per hour. Adding all that together, and Robert realized he'd come across what was likely an interstellar object, meaning it had come from someplace outside our solar system. And, based on how fast it moved, wouldn't be sticking around for very long. So the the thing was, because it was moving so fast and away from us, it was becoming fainter and fainter as time went on. So we actually had a limited window, I think it was only two weeks, to actually observe it from the ground. The discovery of this object sent scientists and amateur astronomers and sci-fi enthusiasts into a tizzy, and it brought up lots of questions. Starting with the most basic, what is it? Some sort of comet? So every observation we've taken To us, it's consistent with being a natural object. Or could it be advanced technology from an alien race? We examine the possibility that this is an artificially made object. Rock or proof of extraterrestrial life? This conversation wasn't happening on the fringes. 
It was in peer-reviewed science journals and major newspapers, and it clearly caught everyone's attention. But beyond that, what if this weird object turned out to be E.T.? What if we finally had proof that somewhere out there, another civilization existed? I haven't thought much about extraterrestrial life. Until recently, I mostly thought about Bigfoot. But then two things happened back to back that put my mind on E.T. The first was this object, which caught our eye in October 2017. And then, a mere two months later, screaming headlines announced the existence of a secret UFO program at the Pentagon. Coincidence? Probably. But if the military is talking about UFOs, and scientists are speculating about advanced extraterrestrial technology, well, the aliens definitely have my attention. And based on all the news about these two events, I'm not the only one. In fact, I fully admit to being rather late to this party. The idea of aliens, extraterrestrials, little green men, whatever you want to call them, capture a lot of imaginations and inspire a wide range of people, from movie makers to backyard astronomers to astrobiologists. And everyone has questions. Are they out there? Will we find them? Have they already found us? Or are we truly alone? With all that in mind, we turn our eyes skyward. I'm Laura Krantz. Welcome to the second season of Wild Thing, Space Invaders, a series about the search for extraterrestrial life, where we're looking, what we're looking for, and why we hope we're not alone. Robert Warrick works as a planetary defense researcher at the University of Hawaii. His title made me think he's prepping for an alien invasion. It's a little less dramatic than that, but it's still pretty fascinating. So planetary defense is NASA's definition of, you know, like asteroid hazards to the Earth. So spotting objects that came from way out in space, well beyond our solar system, was just part of the job. Except that no one had ever actually done it. Some of my colleagues like to joke that it's going to be my one-hit wonder. They also like to call it the, the Robject. While astronomers had speculated for years about interstellar objects, they'd never seen one, at least that they were aware of, which blew my mind. Had we really never welcomed a visitor from outside our tiny little corner of the universe? Maybe I've just read too much science fiction, but I was really surprised to find out that this was, honest to God, the first interstellar object we'd even seen which made me think how totally wild it is that we, right here, right now, got to be the ones to witness it. I mean, people have spent their whole lives, their careers, watching for these objects. Robert Warrick, in fact, had been looking for a long time. I did my undergraduate degree in physics, and my undergraduate thesis project was actually looking for interstellar meteoroids, and I didn't find any. So when I found this, it's like... I actually sent a, a message to my old advisor, and I was like, hey, look, I finally found one. Scientists did not, in fact, call it the Robject. They christened it first with a formal title, 1I-2017-U1. One for first, I for interstellar object, 2017 is the year, while U is for the month. And then they gave it a much more lyrical name, Oumuamua. We basically wanted to honor the Hawaiian culture in connection with astronomy in Hawaii. So we actually contacted the um, Hawaiian Linguistics Department on campus 
and we told them about the object, you know, how we came to find it, and they actually proposed the name to us. Translated, the name Oumuamua means a messenger from afar arriving first, something like a scout, and it had traveled a really long way to get to us. Oumuamua has likely been traveling through the galaxy for millions of years. From where? We don't know. Things aren't stationary in this universe. They're not locked into one place. It's very difficult to trace back exactly where it came from. Um, The problem is things in the galaxy are moving. Especially over the course of billions of years. So Oumuamua's origins are a complete mystery, and probably always will be. And its appearance, its shape, its speed, whatever it is, this thing is just so weird. It looks so strange, and it looks like it should be the typical object, uh, that raises curiosity as to where it comes from. That's Avi Loeb. He's the chair of the astronomy department at Harvard University. And Oumuamua struck him as being so unusual that he suggested it might, might be artificial in origin. Which totally means what you think it means, aliens. For starters, there's how bright it was. It looked like it varied by a factor of 10, uh, meaning that it's extreme in its shape, at least 10 times longer than it is wide, in projection. Basically, we measured the light reflecting off it as it turned end over end, bright, dim, bright, dim. And based on that, it seems that one side was at least 10 times longer than the other. And that is a few times more than the most extreme objects we have seen in the solar system. It also didn't look like a comet. There is no cometary tail around it, so it's not like a comet. It doesn't have a trail of gas and dust behind it. And it didn't move as expected. Unexpectedly, it deviated from an orbit that is shaped just by the sun's gravity. So it seems like there is something pushing it. Once scientists caught sight of a muamua and had some time to observe it, they could make predictions about the path it would take. Except a muamua kept shifting off that path, and no one could see exactly why. All of those characteristics made Loeb think differently about a muamua. I propose that we examine the possibility that this is an artificially made object that is being pushed by sunlight. He floated the idea of an alien light sail. So instead of the rocket effect, it's just the fact that sunlight bounces off its surface in the same way that wind pushes on a sail of a sailboat, that this object may be propelled by the reflection of sunlight. Light from the sun actually pushes the sail. When a tennis ball bounces off a wall, you know, it gives the wall a push, a small push. Now, the building doesn't move because the building is very massive. But if you had a smaller object, like another ball, then it would move it. Light sails are something that we Earthlings are just starting to develop. It's worth noting that Loeb advises the program that's researching and engineering this idea. And no doubt, that's at least part of the reason he's even thinking about this kind of thing. And we'll hear more about light sails later in the season. But this super advanced technology could solve some of the sticky problems of getting around the galaxy. Light sails move faster. They use less energy. And it stands to reason that a more advanced civilization, an alien civilization, might have a fleet of light sails out there probing the universe and potentially checking out our drop of the Milky Way. If you have a guest for dinner and that guest looks very unusual and By the time you recognize that it's unusual, it already left the front door into the dark street. Which, unfortunately, is what happened with Oumuamua. 
By the time we realized just what it was, it was already moving away from us, giving us limited time to study it. We don't have the technology to go after it, at least not yet. And within a few weeks of noticing it, we didn't even have the ability to track it anymore. Which means it's unlikely we'll ever get answers to all of our questions about what it is, where it came from, what it's made of, where it's going, just to name a few. That's quite unfortunate because science is based on evidence. And the more evidence we have, the better conclusions we can draw about the nature of this object. It could very well be a comet, a piece of rocky debris from a far-flung part of the universe. Robert Warrick has no reason to think it's anything other than a rock, violently ejected from its own solar system, and now passing unexpectedly through ours. It's more like a comet. This object is special, but I, I don't think it's super special in the fact that it's 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 something we would have in our own solar system. It just happens to be from another one, and we're very lucky to see it. But Loeb wants people, scientists, to consider the possibility that it might be technological instead of geological, because he is very much of the opinion that we are not alone. And so I don't think that we are special or unique. I think it's a sign of arrogance on our behalf to think that we are special. And I think it's a purely scientific program to check for the existence of alien civilizations out there because we exist. There's a lot of silliness that surrounds the idea of extraterrestrials, but Avi Loeb doesn't think there should be. I think right now we're putting blinders uh, on our telescopes by saying, let's forget about the alien option. You know, that's, that's inappropriate because, um, you know, when Galileo said to the church, why don't you look through my telescope? And they refused. That didn't make his argument go away. Nope. The Earth still moves around the sun, even if the church did put Galileo on house arrest for his heretical observations. So similarly with alien life, we need to collect evidence and remain as objective as possible, rather than dismissing possibilities. We certainly do it in other areas of science. Why is it part of the mainstream nowadays in theoretical physics to consider extra dimensions when we have no evidence for them? Someone would say that is crazy because how dare you speak about something that we have never witnessed, like additional dimensions to space. Even if it helps you solve some equations and it looks mathematically very fancy and it makes you think that you are smart mathematically, it doesn't mean that it describes nature and you still call yourself a physicist and you think that you are leading physics and that you can be arrogant enough to claim that this is the frontier of physics. To me, that sounds more crazy than discussing extraterrestrial intelligence, which is basically saying we know the conditions are similar on other planets in the Milky Way galaxy. Maybe the outcome is the same. What's crazy about that? And if someone like Avi Loeb, chair of the astronomy department at a prestigious university, thinks we should examine this question seriously, well, maybe we should. When I first learned about Oumuamua, I couldn't see that it was anything other than a well-traveled space rock. I mean, don't get me wrong, I thought it was super cool, but the idea that this might have alien origins, that some far-flung civilization could be scouting the universe, looking for life, resources, cool views, I wasn't so sure about that. But if I learned nothing else from the time I spent with Sasquatch, it's that having an open mind creates a lot of room for new possibilities and creative thinking. And who knows what you might find? We'll be right back. 
At the top of the episode, we talked about Whoop, the 24-7 fitness tracker that gets you training smarter by giving you feedback on every moment of your day. Once you set your fitness goals with Whoop, it tells you how long and how hard you can train based on a sophisticated analysis of your body's readiness. By calculating data, like your heart rate variability and the amount of time you spend in different sleep cycles, Whoop knows if you're ready to push or need to dial it back. As Whoop Vice President of Performance Science Kristen Holmes sees it, this enables everyone from experienced athletes to people just getting started with training to get fitter faster by avoiding mistakes. Whoop just helps accelerate your wisdom on how your body is adapting. That knowledge can help you make better decisions day to day as opposed to three weeks down the track realizing, oh man, that was a really crummy three weeks, you know? Whoop doesn't let you get that far down a bad path. Like we're gonna interrupt that before it becomes a, a real problematic cycle. At Outside, we've gotten so excited about Whoop's ability to help athletes reach their true potential that we've partnered with them for a first of its kind study that has runners basing their workouts on how recovered they are. It's called Project PR, the Personalized Recovery Study. And we'll be reporting the findings on Outside Online later this year. You know, there's this opportunity to, I think, really accelerate fitness gains by just being more dialed in to how your body is responding and adapting to training. Learn more about how Whoop can help you reach your potential at Whoop.com. That's W-H-O-O-P.com. For a limited time, Outside Podcast listeners get 15% off a membership. Just enter the code OUTSIDE at checkout. If I didn't know much about Bigfoot when I started that adventure, I know even less about extraterrestrial life. The movies E.T. and Alien have been my touchstones. In one, we humans practically kill a harmless little space turtle after packing him full of junk food. In the other, we're trapped on a ship in the void of space and mercilessly killed and devoured by a monster that still makes me break out in a cold sweat. But as influential as alien movies have been on us, there's probably more to extraterrestrial relationships than kill or be killed, friend or foe. First off, we have to actually find real evidence of extraterrestrial life. And would aliens even be as easy to spot as the creatures in these movies? Do we even know what aliens would look like? Most of our depictions of them show creatures that look an awful lot like us. That's right. And we tend to think, first of all, that we are central that we are the, the prototype of anything, that we are the pinnacle of creation. And, you know, I, I, I sort of understand that because I have two young daughters, um, and when they were infants, they tended to think that the world centers on them. And the, the, they matured only by going out to the street and seeing other people and realizing they might not be so special. And I think for us to mature as a civilization requires that we find evidence for life elsewhere that is different, perhaps more sophisticated, and it might be, at first, difficult to recognize it. And part of the reason it might be hard to recognize is because, as astrobiologist Natalie Cabrol explains, we're still trying to figure out exactly what life is. We don't have a working definition about that. And that bothers me a lot, because then you can be searching for a long time uh, for something you don't know what it is about. So then you are bumping into the question of, you know, am I going to be able to recognize it, even if I have it in front of me? Likewise, would it be able to recognize us? 
Am I able to ever be uh, capable of saying that this is an ambiguous sign of life? Of course, if you have a flying saucer or rabbit jumping in front of you, I guess that's pretty obvious. But it may be that life is something different than that, than what we have now. If we're thinking about our own planet, well, most of the life here is microbial. There could be as many as one trillion species of microbes on Earth. So it certainly makes sense that we're heavily invested in that kind of search. In the next 20 years, we're going to have various missions that are going to sample, you know, some of these nearby, mostly moons and a few plants, and, and look for life. And if we find microbes nearby, at least that tells you, hey, you know what? At least biology is not rare. I mean, there's life in various places, so it must be all over there. We haven't found it yet, but as astronomer Seth Shostak points out, it could be everywhere, abundant even. There are scientists who'd be willing to stake money on there being life on Mars, or one of the moons orbiting Jupiter and Saturn. Microbial life, of course. Any intelligent life is likely going to be really far away. And space is big. A lot of times people don't realize that space is probably uh, one of the things that has the most fitting name, because space is basically space. That's Jorge Perez Gallegos, an astronomer we'll hear more from later. He says that in the best case scenario, there's intelligent life in the nearest star system, four light years away. But even communicating with them will be hard. The first like major radio broadcast, that's the first thing that this alien civilization gets. But like, that's moving at the speed of light, you know? So it takes these many years to reach whatever, and then if there's someone there, it takes so many years for them to get back to us. Imagine Proxima Centauri, which is the closest star to the sun, about 4.4 light years away. Imagine having a conversation of like, hello, how are you doing? How are you doing? Like eight years later, yeah, we're fine, what about you? To get to these other planets, or for their inhabitants to get to us, will take decades, centuries even. The issue may not be, is there life elsewhere? The issue may be, given the distances between the places in which life could happen, would two different life forms from different planets in different galaxies be ever able to be aware of each other? Which is another reason why Oumuamua is so incredibly fascinating. Think of the distances it crossed, the sheer amount of time it's been traveling. And if it is an alien probe, think of the things it's seen. Honestly, once I started reading about Oumuamua, I couldn't get enough. I read theories about how it could be carrying dormant microbes deep in its core, and that if Oumuamua slammed into a planet or a moon, it could seed it with life. Or that Oumuamua got its weird shape because it was part of a newly forming planet that passed too close to its star and was ripped apart by tidal forces. It's been nearly three years since Robert Warrick spotted Oumuamua, and scientists are still coming up with theories about it. It's clear that the public is fascinated with the topic. Stories about it made the pages of the New York Times and the Washington Post. Comparisons to science fiction ricocheted around the internet. Artist renderings of what it might look like grace the cover of science magazines. But as with all aspects of the search for extraterrestrial life, there seem to be more questions than answers, more theories than concrete truths. 
And at the heart of all this curiosity is a question we've been asking for thousands of years, ever since we started looking skyward. What exactly is out there? As I mentioned earlier, I'm definitely late to the party on this topic. No doubt many of you have been thinking about these questions for years. And this podcast is just one of thousands, maybe millions of resources about this topic. One could say there's an astronomical amount of information. I won't cover it all. That's not even possible. But as Oumuamua hooked me, I came across other aspects of this search that reeled me in. So I hope to pique your curiosity, too, and send you down some wormholes of your own. We'll spend time with astrobiologists looking for the bridge between chemistry and biology and searching out microbial life. If there is life um, in our solar system that we could actually go find in our lifetimes, which would be quite exciting, (laughs) I think it's going to be microbial life. I think it's probably going to be single-celled. With scientists looking for more advanced civilizations. So we're looking out there to see if we can find any radio signals, any optical signals, anything that might indicate megastructures, geoengineering, that kind of thing that would tell us that someone else is using a technology. We'll hear from those who think aliens may have already made their way here. People who swear they've seen aliens or evidence of extraterrestrial visitors. Well, how do you know they weren't from here, to which she responded, They sure weren't from Texas. I really feel that there is someone from another world coming here. I really feel that. But I don't think that they're here to harm. And I I understand that there is an intergalactic agreement that they can observe but not interfere. And I said, oh my goodness, beings from another planet. What could they be and where could they be from? And how did they get here? And in this particular case, as opposed to all the others, we had a crash. It's a nuts and bolts wreckage. Does the government know something about this? They've lied for so long that I don't think they can get out of it. Why is it covered up? I think it's one word, control. Our government won't admit to anything they can't control. And if so, what are they hiding from us? Basically what I want is the truth. And I don't think we've been told the truth in 72 years. But the Defense Department finally had to admit that they've been doing this research. They're starting to look at Navy pilot film. That's big. When the Defense Department has to admit, yes, we've been doing research on UFOs. Oh, right. The military. All those stories from fighter pilots who see strange objects flying off the east coast of the United States. The fact that these things could be out there flying around at 0.6 or 0.8 Mach, but be doing it, you know, from 7 in the morning till, you know, 11 at night. Um, And then, you know, stay still and then accelerate, all that. We don't have that type of aircraft that can do that for that long. And what about that secret military UFO program? These are objects that are in the sky that um, affect our airspace and so on, and we can't explain them, and they demonstrate very sophisticated technology and they interact with our aircraft. Anything like that, it has to be considered a potential threat when you don't know what it is and it's in your airspace. That's obviously something they have to pay attention to, especially within the Department of Defense. Officially, no one is saying that UFOs are the same thing as aliens, but people have certainly speculated it could be extraterrestrial. 
And whether those aliens are down here or out there, is it even a good idea to reach out? And so the question is, shouldn't we say hello? Should we put ourselves out there and say, hey guys, we're Earth, we're here, we're, we're intelligent. Um, are you there? Hello, 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 is anybody there? Are you there? Or is it better if we just observe? There are people who say, don't do it, right? Because Stephen Hawking rather famously said, don't do it. <laughs> you'll only get us in trouble, maybe. You know, maybe you'll get us in trouble. Because now they'll know we're here and they'll you know, just incinerate the Earth because it sounds like a good thing to do. We'll look at what little we know. I do think that doing a year and a half of research on UFOs has made me more open to the idea that there's like a whole lot of the universe that we don't understand. And think about what else we have yet to learn. Well, welcome to the adventure of human inquiry. And that is shared by theology and science and art and everything. I want to keep science at the heart of this because the truth is out there somewhere. But I also want to explore our fascination with this topic, the philosophical questions it raises, and the effect it's had on our imaginations. What are we hoping to find? Is life common? Are there other species out there? Or are we an anomaly, something special? What does it mean if we find something? And what does it mean if we don't? What's the likelihood that as we're looking out into space, something else might be looking back at us? And what can we learn from this act of searching and all the directions it takes us? So come on, are you ready for another adventure? That was Laura Krantz. She is the host, creator, and producer of Wild Thing. The show is a production of Foxtopus, Inc. Their executive producer is Scott Carney. Editing is by Alicia Lipinski. And the score and sound mixing is by Louis Weeks. You can listen to Wild Thing wherever you get your podcasts and visit them online at wildthingpodcast.com. This episode of The Outside Podcast was brought to you by Whoop, the fitness tracker that gets you training smarter by giving you feedback on every moment of your day. Learn more about how Whoop can help you reach your potential by training and recovering smarter at Whoop.com. That's W-H-O-O-P.com. For a limited time, outside podcast listeners get 15% off a membership. Just enter the code OUTSIDE at checkout. We'll be back next week.